0: Yeah? Sure. Let's do a podcast.
1: When you hear that Lauren Huff grew up in a cult, or a sex cult even, I think it's easy to think, oh my god, I can't possibly imagine what that must have been like. And that is where you're wrong. As Lauren points out in her new book called Leaving Isn't the Hardest Thing, what takes place in a cult was and is happening in our country and the rest of the world right now. I'm talking about believing in certain things that other people don't, and I'm also talking about child abuse, sexual violence. These things happen all the time. And as Lauren says, in the cult, they just did the quiet parts out loud. Lauren's book also touches on her time in the Air Force during Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and the many different professions and identities she's had along the way, including delivering pizzas, being a bouncer at a gay bar, and perhaps most famously thanks to a now viral essay, she worked for many years as a cable man. So today we're going to hear about it all. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and this is LGBTQ&A with Lauren Huff, author of Leaving Isn't the Hardest Thing. I want to start with your childhood. You grew up in the family, which is also known as the family of love, which is also known as children of God. And it was a cult. You know, reading the book, I discovered that I didn't actually know what that meant and like everything that that entailed. So just to begin with, can you give just like a short explanation to everyone of what that looked like for you?
0: It's a lot more mundane, I think, than people want it to be. I think people are expecting a lot of rituals, maybe robes involved. It was living in houses with a lot of other people, a lot of families. It was changing diapers constantly because sex cults make babies.
1: And very historical, like male and female gender roles, right?
0: Yeah, extremely. Very much reinforced, not not just through the literature, but just through your jobs. Whenever you moved into a new house, the boys would get set up building bunk beds for our beds at night, and we would be sewing curtains or taking care of the kids so that the adult men could go do the bunk beds and the women could cook dinner.
1: So like cult is a word that we have assigned to them. Internally, though, how do they describe themselves?
0: Oh, they're not a cult. Nobody's ever joined a cult or been in a cult. Everyone else is in a cult. They are a religious sect and they are persecuted and called a cult as a slur. So that's how it was discussed internally, and that's what it was presented to us as. Is the mainstream media and the systemite media is trying to attack us by calling us a cult. I mean, just because we live together in a big group and follow a leader that we think is the prophet of God and tells us heaven is in the moon, that that's not a cult.
1: Well, I think that like everything you just said could like very well be assigned to like religious beliefs by religions.
0: Yeah, generally. We get into a lot about cults, but really the main difference is a cult is smaller. If it has a lot of members and it's lasted a while, now it's a religion.
1: As you said, like it's colloquially known as a sex cult. And I think that like when people hear that, they think like, oh, they're sex positive. That sounds fun. And as you write, that's really an overly generous washing of what happened. It's quite a bit darker.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think anytime you start to write rules about sex, it's going to get a little dark, especially if the guy writing the rules is 60 67-year-old alcoholic and what his fantasies are are not what you want yours to be. There's a schedule on the wall. It's not fun or pretty. It's
1: a schedule for sex.
0: Yeah. You don't get to decide who you're fucking that night. There's a designated night. Sometimes there's a designated room the sharing room.
1: A lot of this too was, you know, sex with minors, which is, I guess, rape. I don't want want to like sugarcoat that. Like being a part of this group, you were in it because of your parents. You were a kid at the time. Did that color like how you like viewed your parents since like they were the ones who like chose to be a part of this?
0: Not really. Strangely. And maybe it's my own version of cognitive dissonance, but nobody joins a cult because they want their children to be abused. They they joined because they're trying to make the world a better place and they wanted to do good in the world. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't hold it against them. Well, I think
1: that the other assumption that's easy to make is that for something that is called, you know, quote unquote, sex positive, that that would extend over to queerness when it was the opposite.
0: And it's the same thing that say about nexium or the children of god if you want to pick the two sex cults that most people know about it's old men are writing the rules so those are the rules you're going to go by so no homosexuality was a sin akin to murder you were excommunicated for it if they couldn't pray it out of you and it's the same thing with fucking teenage girls what straight older guy isn't defending whichever last politician got caught with a teenage girl Oh, well, I mean, sometimes you can't tell. Fuck you, you can. If you're 40 years old, every 17-year-old looks like a child to you. And I got out of it thinking it was this horrific thing that I could never tell anyone about. But it's not really all that different. They just did all the quiet parts out loud.
1: That um, That is such a fascinating realization. I think because you're completely right.
0: <laughs> Sorry.
1: But I guess at what point did you make that connection that like, oh, this is also happening in the outside world?
0: It took a while and I didn't think, I'd spent most of my dollar just not even thinking about where I'd come from or trying to not think about it as hard as possible. Those are the thoughts you kind of drove out so you could go to sleep at night. So I didn't relate any of it until I started writing about it and describing the cult take out the profit and take out the communal living. And you're just describing society. The only difference was it was sanctioned where I grew up. In the book you write about
1: not telling anyone about this part of your life for years and years and making up stories and lies. You very easily could have done that for the rest of your life. And you probably believe that you would, you know, in your twenties and thirties maybe. I guess what I wonder is like, just like what changed to make you say, no, I like will and have to start talking about this.
0: Well, I thought it would go away like you do with any sort of trauma. You push it down as far as you can and just hope that goes away. And it doesn't work that way. It festers and gets really fun and starts affecting your relationships and it starts affecting how you function in daily life. My main thing with talking about it is I started writing and I sounded like everyone else. I sounded like the last person I'd read. And then I started writing about me and my life and I finally found out what I sound like. It became really hard to lie after that.
1: One other thing I was wondering about your time in the cold, if that's okay. That's (laughs) right. Is that okay? (laughs)
0: No, it is. It's, I don't know why I'm okay talking about it with gay people. I'm not, when straight people ask me about it, I still get a little twitchy about it. I'm like, you guys, I can't talk about sex with you people.
1: If it's too much, let me know. But also it's not about sex because I was just wondering that the When you grew up and were raised, like, your whole framework or conception of beauty in the cult was to make yourself attractive to a man. Right. And that's how you were taught. And I just wonder, like, how much did that shape your own perception of beauty now? Like, how much does that show up today?
0: Yeah, but I mean, what preteen teenage girl isn't taught to be attractive to a man? That's the entirety of Instagram is teaching girls how to be more attractive to men. And that's your entire value is based on that. Think fuck I'm a dyke, honestly. You can just cut your hair off and you feel great.
1: Oh, so I guess to your point, everything that stood out to me as being totally and completely overt in the cult, make yourself beautiful so a man is attracted to you. Your point is that that's just the real world, but maybe the cult was like putting words to it more specifically.
0: Yeah, they're they're really just louder about it. Instead of just walking through Target and seeing all the t-shirts that, you know, if you look at the boys, they are robots and scientists and science and shit. And if you look at the girls, it's glitter and rainbows and unicorns. And in a cult, they're just telling you, look, you you need to be attractive to men. That is your job. It really was just society amplified.
1: What also seemed like they picked up on your queerness before you did.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're going to stand out when you're the tomboy in a cult. I didn't really know what a lesbian was. I knew it was a bad thing, but I had no idea what it was. they I remember a prayer meeting where they were cursing my lesbian spirit, and I was very confused. I wanted to look up who that was, where I was from. I thought maybe it was like one of their spirit worlds that I hadn't read about. Because yeah, they would randomly make up spirit worlds, and there was that was where your demon came from. But yeah, I had no idea what it meant.
1: The, the other part of your story, growing up and after, was living in... Poverty. I think you wrote like devastating poverty. And I want to be clear to people listening that, like, I'm not saying that your family was broke because I think there's like a difference between like broke and poor. But you describe, you know, sharing a bedroom with 15 other kids at one point, asking people for money in the street. And I just wonder, growing up and not knowing any different, like, did did you have any conception of how poor you were?
0: No, I really didn't. I mean, I was always jealous of kids and their family out at the zoo and getting a snack and a treat and an ice cream and being spoiled so you would see that and then you would try to sell them a poster for some change and so yeah there was like a little bit of envy of, for for other kids and i thought they had these great perfect lives but i didn't really understand that we were poor i didn't really have a concept of it it's hard to even describe that now i just didn't understand the concept of poor
1: when did you start to like when did that start to dawn on you
0: pretty early on when we got out. You can't. And I never tried. Like This isn't something I had to learn by trial and error. You don't tell other people about eating out of garbage cans at the back of grocery stores and that that's where your food came from.
1: Oh, you make that mistake once and you learn really quickly.
0: Yeah. I, n- I never made it once. I made a mistake once of eating the uh, the broccoli at a party. It was a basketball party at someone's house. And they had that tray of the carrots and the broccoli and that you dip in the ranch dressing and that's, you know, the healthy snack. And I was just chewing on broccoli and one of the other girls on the basketball team looked at me and, did you grow up in a cult or something? And it was, you know, just a stupid thing you say to someone, but I was horrified.
1: I, I guess like all of these questions are like wondering, like, does that ever leave you, you know, growing up that poor? Does it imprint on you forever? And I think the answer is like, obviously, yes, in your case.
0: There's definitely an imprint. You're never really comfortable about food. It comes in handy. The pandemic started and I already had two weeks of food stocked up. I don't feel safe if I don't have a bunch of cans of tuna and some rice and some beans. I'm terrified of that. No, I don't think it leaves you. I think it imprints on you. And I don't know that it imprints on you well. I'm terrible with money. I have no idea what to do with it. I don't know that I'll ever learn. I don't really understand money or the concept of it. It just pisses me off anytime I have to deal with it.
1: So like you got a check for an advance for the book, like that first quarter, like, did you just like deposit it and leave it go or did you like go out and spend it?
0: That first one went to, I went to the dentist. I got super generous with my friends too. One friend got an air conditioner, but yeah, it went to, it went to bills and dentist and everything I'd ignored for a while and vet bills and then it was gone.
1: I think of money as like a foreign language that you learn when you're really young. And if you don't, it's so hard to gain fluency.
0: Yeah, it really is. I don't, I don't understand it.
1: How does growing up in that financial situation shape you in terms of the jobs and employment you've had? Because you've had every job in the book, every job in your book specifically. I mean, could you just like name like four of them? Like you were a bartender, you were a cable man famously.
0: Yeah, bartender. I groomed dogs for a minute. I delivered pizzas. I worked in a fast food restaurant. I was a bouncer for a while. then I was a bouncer again. I was a bouncer when I was writing this book. The Cable Guy essay I wrote sitting outside of a bar, checking IDs randomly. And then when the essay blew up, I was sitting outside a bar talking to like producers and like, hey, dude, I need to see your ID. And then back on the phone, the whole thing has been kind of a bizarre experience. I just do shitty jabs. And that's what you're assigned to in this country if you don't have an education. I was going to community college at the time to try to not have to do shitty jobs for the rest of my life. But I didn't really know how to do that even.
1: I guess like my judgment reading the book was, oh, Lauren's getting jobs for survival, not enjoyment. But it's also like limited options, it sounds like.
0: Yeah, it's limited options. It's survival. If you don't have a degree in this country and you don't have work experience at certain jobs or you don't have the connections, those are the jobs that you're going to be able to get.
1: Well, I think that like Hollywood has given us the image of somebody who's an author and they publish a book and then they buy their mansion because obviously the book made $9 million. <laughs> I think more and more we're learning that it's not a full-time job to like be a writer. But I, I guess like, I still think that there is a disconnect for people that you are, you know, a bouncer at a bar writing a book that is a book that's like, incredibly well-received too.
0: Yeah. I mean, the only the only reason I'm able to do this and the only reason I could... Quit my cable job and go to school and work as a bouncer again to get enough to get by, is I got VA disability because they finally recognized that anti-gay harassment or sexual assault might cause PTSD. So I get VA disability monthly. It was basically a writing grant. I quit my job and I figured if I lived very frugally, then I could write.
1: And early on when he did have all of these jobs that we named, I feel like that also like monopolized your time. Like, did you have that much time to
0: spend writing? I didn't have much time to spend thinking. Yeah, I I didn't have time to write. I mean, that's kind of the problem in this country is if you don't start with a certain amount of money to begin with, you don't get to be who you are until you have enough money to be who you are. And time comes with that. If you're working to survive, you're not going to have a whole lot of time to think and write and read.
1: And I'm like, to be like in the frame of mind to like let that in. You wrote that during this time when you're working to survive, that you're constantly stressed, you're angry, you're hateful. That doesn't make for a good like writing hour.
0: No, it does not. Yeah, it takes a long time to wind down from work. If you're working those sort of menial jobs, I'd get home at seven, eight, nine o'clock at night and... There was maybe half an hour to try to unwind, and then I had to go to bed because I had to go to work again. I think a lot of writers should maybe be a little more honest about where the money comes from, and that would help. But it keeps a lot of marginalized writers out of the writing world. We are going to be the ones doing those jobs and not having the connections or the money.
1: Well, I, I guess people are like, oh, like Lauren's the outlier here, but we mentioned your viral essay about being a cable man. Th- that is how you got noticed and like, were able to publish a book, right? Yeah. Oh, I, I so I don't I don't want that to be I don't want that to be rude. I mean to say like you can't like build a career like banking
0: on hopefully going viral one day. You know. <laughs> yeah. And no, I didn't take it as an insulting thing. I'm just wanted to go back to you can't. It's such a fucking crapshoot of what goes viral and when. That was the right day, the slowest goddamn news day when everyone was looking at their phones because they got tired of Christmas and hanging out with their families. Yeah, it's dumb luck that that went viral.
1: You know, there was this moment after you left the Air Force or moving to D.C. It kind of, like, broke my heart, actually, because you were describing what you wanted and what you hoped to find moving to D.C. You wanted not to hide your sexuality, to not have to, like, look both ways when you left a bar in case there was, like, a flying beer bottle aiming for your head. You wanted safety and community. When you have those things, it's easy to take them for granted, but I think it touched me because that's not something that anyone could say, like, you're asking for too much, Lauren.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's the civil rights battle in a nutshell. These people are just asking to live their fucking lives. And God damn it, we're not going to let them. You lived
1: out of your car for a while, eventually got a job working as a bouncer at a gay bar. Did you find those things there?
0: Yeah, I did, actually. Nobody starts working at a bar because their life turned out fucking awesome. Um, <laughs> so... There's kind of an instant camaraderie if you're the staff at a bar and it happens at restaurants too. It happens in a lot of shitty jobs. There's kind of an instant us versus them thing that brings you all together, especially gay bars. And it's why we still fucking need them. They have that instant family that's built into the gay community forever. You know, they're the older gays who take you in for Thanksgiving when you don't have a place to go. It's a whole community. You
1: said that people there had your back in a
0: way that you never experienced in the Air Force. Yeah, that's the funny thing. You'd watch the movies and think that's what you get out of the military. Well, not at that time, not if you're gay. I found it at a gay bar.
1: Before I let you go, what is next for you in terms of life and like employment, making money? Like, are you going back to like a bar after all this? And like, and also what's next to you in terms of
0: writing and like more work? God, I hope I don't have to go to a bar. Please buy my books so I don't have to work at a bar. No, I was down, I was down in Austin recently and my bar manager asked me if I wanted my job back and I told him maybe. Writing is like a God, it's a gambling addiction. You sit there and you're like pulling the fucking handle and pushing the button, hoping for that feeling that you had that one time when you wrote something good. So you keep doing it, but it's not necessarily healthy and you might cash in once or twice, but you probably won't. I was
1: asking if you were going back to the bar after this, because I think that it is so important for people to hear the truth of like this professional writer, Lauren Huff, who has her name on the book, what
0: that <laughs> actually looks like in her life. I mean, parts of it are really fucking cool. I don't want to sell this as something that's horrible. It's not all bad. It's just, you're probably still going to be broke and you might have to get that bar job again. I don't think you make it sound like it's all bad,
1: so I don't think you're doing It's fine. for I'm, sure. Yeah, I'm fine with it. It's just keep your expectations about money low.
0: That's all that is.
1: Well, thank you for talking and being so honest today.
0: Oh, thank you. It's been fun. I'm sorry, I think I'm in a weird mood. This is what you got.
1: And that is Lauren Huff, author of a new book called Leaving Isn't the Hardest Thing. It's out now. And then, as always, if you enjoyed the interview, please leave a comment on Apple Podcasts. If you're in the app now and scroll all the way to the bottom of our homepage, you'll see the section where to do it there. Leaving a comment there on Apple Podcasts is really one of the biggest ways you can help support our show. And it's free. It is free to do. It costs you nothing. So win-win for everybody. But in all seriousness, doing things like that, as well as spreading the word to your friends, is really the biggest way you can help our show continue making new episodes episodes. So thank you so much for that. We're brought to you by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and I will see you next week. Bye.